Well, good morning to you all. We're going to be in Ephesians this morning, chapter 4, starting in verse 12. As you're turning there, I'd like to open the message today with a joke that I workshopped on Wednesday night. So if you were here Wednesday, you did hear it. And please laugh, and I'll know if you didn't. My daughters and I came up with this joke. They heard a version of it somewhere, and then we made it better, we think. But here it is. So there was a man, he uh, went up to heaven, and he's talking to God, and he says, man, God, you're just so massive and mighty and holy and powerful. He said, what is, what is like even time to you? Like, what, what's a million years to you, God? And God says, eh, second. And the man goes, wow. Then the man thinks and he says, money must be nothing to you. And God's like, yeah, it's nothing. Then he says, a million dollars, that's like a penny to you, isn't it, God? And God says, yeah, sure. And then the man smirks to himself and he thinks, and he says, hey, God, can I have a penny? And God smiles and says, in a second. <laughs> My children are funnier than I am, so I have to give them the credit. Ephesians chapter 4. What does it have to do with the message? Absolutely nothing. It's just funny. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, looking in verse 12, we read, To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, who into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly." makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, as we seek to gain unity today through your word, as we seek to grow in love, Lord, make it about yourself. Lord, the scripture declares you are the head. You are the one who is in charge. You are the one who does, in fact, know something, Lord. And we simply need to learn and listen. We need to listen and learn. We need to, we need to sit down spiritually once in a while and actually let you be the good shepherd we know you are. Lord, you don't need advice. You don't need my thoughts on how you ought to do things. Lord, you do things in a perfect way, for you are divine. Lord, there is no improving upon you. So instead of trying, instead of coming up with a new idea, Lord, or a new program, or a new ministry, I maybe should just instead do what you said to do, from the start. Make it about you and less about us. Lord, that's how we grow in unity. It's not about all getting on the same theological page. We're human, sinful human beings. We'll never do that. Lord, unity is actually you being the one who is in charge. When you are in charge and your people follow what you say, then there'll be unity. Then there'll be peace. Then there will be growth spiritually. So, Lord, help us to get this today. Help us to learn it and glorify you as we do. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Looking at verse 12, the purpose of the gifted men is to prepare God's people for works of service. More literally, this purpose is for the perfecting or equipping of the saints. Mending or preparing nets is the imagery in the Greek here. Jesus called us fishers of men, and the nets get torn and damaged in that work. They have to be fixed and mended. 
So there's a whole aspect here of church ministry where it's not just the great apostle Peter who throws the net over the other side and hauls in a full load. He's not the only one doing the work of the kingdom. There are people not in the boat, they're on the shore, they don't have the famous part of the job, but they're mending the nets without which Peter won't catch anything. Spiritually, it's the same way. I get the glory, in a sense, by being on stage and having the microphone. But you are ones mending nets, and we need you to, because if I cast out a net that's torn, I'm not going to catch anyone. So not just pastors minister. Not just church employees minister. There is no qualification in Scripture that says, as soon as they put some coins in your pocket, then you go to work for the kingdom. Rather, it's the opposite. You go to work for the kingdom, and somebody may decide, hey, we need you to do this all the time. We'll buy the eggs. Don't worry. You just keep doing it. We are to minister the word to others so they, in turn, are readied and get involved to ministering to others. This is the reverse pyramid scheme. The pyramid scheme says, hey, you get somebody, and, and we'll get that person to get a couple more, and they all pay in, and we'll all have money. And this is the opposite. Jesus is saying, make disciples and teach them, and what will grow is truth and love. And we'll pour into people rather than taking from them. We'll pour into them. This shows that all saints, and not just a few leaders, should be involved in ministry. All saints are gifted spiritually to serve others spiritually. To equip the saints for building up the body of Christ. This is to equip you. It's not episcope here. It's not elder. It's not leader. It's you. You're the one who's supposed to be working, and that's why you are the one who's supposed to be building. We've got it wrong in our culture. We've turned it into the guy on stage, the, the person with the microphone, the one who has the title. We've turned that person into, well, that's, that's for you to do. People joke about us preachers having the red phone to God, but in seriousness, they act like it. Pastor, I need you to pray because you're closer than I am. If you pray, God might listen. People treat prayer like it's a petition. If we just get enough people praying, it's like signatures, and maybe God in heaven will go, all right, there's a million, I guess I'll do it now. No, God just answers prayer. While Evan was playing music, Kenneth texted me, he's home. Prayer is not petition. Prayer is knowing what God is doing. We're all supposed to be doing this. If, if you leave it to just me and just Robin and just a few others, you're only going to have just our efforts. That would be like only Charlotte cooking for Thanksgiving dinner and not the other talented ladies and men who cook and bring food. Charlotte's dish would taste amazing, but after she and I eat it, there's not any left for any of you. So more people have to be involved. More people have to be in. Leaders are to equip saints. They're not the only ones doing the ministry. As the body of Christ is built, all the saints minister of the gospel of Christ. Let me tell you another cultural problem we have in America. The idea that ministry is only a very specific thing. It's me on stage preaching. You, you moms, especially young moms, you are involved in so much more ministry than I am. Because I'm not going to see y'all tonight at 9 p.m. 
you're probably not going to call me when you can't sleep or you need a glass of milk. But the mom is getting the call from the next room. She's ministering. That's ministry. That's raising godly children, making the next generation of the church. You fathers out there that feel like, I go to work so much, I feel like I can't even be at the church sometimes, you're doing more ministry than I am sometimes. Because your coworkers see you living for Christ. Don't let the culture, which has created a sort of church service that we all kind of adhere to, don't let that make you feel bad when God is pleased with what you are doing. Does that make sense to y'all? Don't let the culture say, yep, it's the man in the suit on stage. He's doing ministry. No. If your heart is seeking to do right by God, you are doing ministry. Look in your life. Look and see the ways you are doing it. You might find out like, geez, no wonder I can't even be at the church building sometimes. I'm doing all this stuff. And we can't do church without you. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of faith. Christians for thousands of years have wanted unity. So much so that they will put people in prison. They'll execute people to reach it, to get it, to obtain it. Because unity has the semblance of peace. When everybody agrees with me, that really means no one's disagreeing with me. And I can feel good about it all the time. But that's not what unity means. We don't sacrifice truth at the altar of unity. We don't say that, okay, we'll just disagree to dis- you know, agree to disagree and do all that. No, not with the gospel. We do not agree to disagree. Unity is not, well, they think just like I do, so that means everything's good. Because I promise you, talk long enough, you'll find something you don't agree on. Unity is when Christ is the leader. When he's driving this wagon train, when he is leading this, he's conducting this train, when he is the captain of the ship, when he is the pilot in the first seat, when he is the one in charge, that's why there's unity. Because instead of having an imperfect leader giving his opinion, you have a perfect God leading you, giving you absolute truth. That leads to unity. But we try. We try all the time. We have so many creeds and confessions and all these things because this, I've figured out what's right, and if you agree with it, you're right, and if you don't, you're wrong. And we used to kill each other for this stuff, us Christians. Old Tyndale, the great translator, they burned him at the stake for translating God's word into English. That's, we can't even fathom that today. You may be like, oh, that person uses the NIV. <laughs> You may even joke and say, one day they'll get saved. But I've yet to find a historical record, especially in our country, of someone being murdered, killed, executed for using the wrong Bible. But that happened. That happened in our past from religious people onto religious people. This happened. This wasn't atheists running around. In fact, in the Middle Ages, there's very few atheists. (laughs) Tyndale was executed by religious people. Religious people who had the same Bible that you have. But their ideas, their opinions, their thoughts allowed them to act in such a way they begin to contradict the very word they claim to follow. Unity is not 
meant to be sacrificed for truth. I know it feels like that sometimes. Just keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. Don't stir the pot. Don't make waves. Don't, don't say the truth about something because somebody will get upset. Which we, we pastors walk that tightrope all the time. You know, I better look at the ground so he doesn't know he's looking right at me. Oh, no. We walk that tightrope of razor's edge all the time because the truth is I ought to just tell you that what you're doing is not only sinful, it's stupid. But I can't because it's so Southern comfort. I, I guess I'll just drink some more sweet tea and not say anything. When I ought to just say what Jesus said. Well, no, the truth is God's not persecuting you. You're just a dummy who makes bad decisions. The Bible's clear about this topic. I like what Jerome Brown says. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And God warns us about this. He says, hey, you walk in the company of fools, what's going to happen to you? Psalm 1. Yeah, we just go, ah, it'll be all right. But we pastors have to walk this edge all the time because people want you to agree with them especially when they have the brand new theological thing they've never seen before. Okay? And it's rare for us because we do it professionally. It's kind of a thing. You know, we have to read, we have to know about all the heresies and stuff. And it's almost a game people play, like, Pastor, have you read or heard about this? And, and I remember I was talking to a classmate of mine when we were in the middle of our dissertations. I, I just happened to say, like, oh, I think this book may be good for your paper. Have you read Tozer's, this work on Tozer did? And my friend kind of went, kind of ashamed, went, no, I haven't read it. And I was like, oh, don't be, don't be ashamed. Like, you can't read everything. <laughs> you know how many books there? Do you know how much theology there is out there? Very little of it good. <laughs> you can't read it all. But yet people will come up and say, hey, I'm really, really interested in this thing. And let me tell you something, folks. It's hard when I'm preaching on Ephesians and some of y'all want to talk about something in Exodus. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about that. I studied this all week. I don't want to talk about that. God has filled my mind with Ephesians. And I'm sort of a dummy, so I, it's all I can hold up there. And I've had people get offended. I can't believe I told you a prayer request and you forgot. I'm like, yeah, because you told me at 1059. It's not going to work. See, unity, to getting together on the same page, it only works in love. Because if we keep it legalistic, we are going to have so much strife. We're going to have so much trouble. And think about the trouble we have over that now. From everything from having the right dress on at church to having the right carpet in church. Church is splitting over these things. Splitting over the color of the carpet I can't imagine what God thinks about that. Almost like God is up there just going like, you have carpet. I have saints worshiping in dirt mud huts with soldiers outside, but the carpet is the problem. Or even worse, I think some churches may get so bad that God, they're, to God they're in the category of the wicked. They've made it so about themselves, or even worse, a perverted false gospel, that to God they are just in the realms of the wicked. 
See, unity is not we all get together. Even Baptists have done this. We have the 2000 faith and message. And some people really like that confession. A lot of people really hate it. Can I tell you what I think about it? Are you ready? I don't really care at all. I like Al Mohler. I think he's awesome. He worked on a lot of that stuff. I'm not saying he's a bad guy or it's a bad document. I'm just saying Ephesians means more to me than anything in that book. And I say that as being somebody who not only wrote and published a book this year, but made some money off of it, let me tell you. $17. I, I got it in cash so I could throw it up in the air and dance in it, but I almost lost one, so I had to stop. This is more important. God's word is the unity. And that's why it's okay when it's God's word to talk about and discuss interpretation. A brother sees it this way. A sister sees it that way. Oh, I'm not sure. Let's talk about it. That's great. God loves that. I think what God doesn't like is when we're like, oh, well, this guy wrote this one time, and I think that should have sway. If I said that to you about your life, you'd be upset. Well, I think you should do this. And you should just listen to me because I have a microphone. I'm somebody. I'm nobody. Who is somebody? Christ is somebody. That's why this is truly. See, we're Protestant. We believe in Sola Scriptura. But I believe even better Jesus when he said, Not one dot, not one tittle will be done away with until all is complete. This is more important. See, you may think I'm criticizing you. I'm not. I'm criticizing the flesh. Because my flesh does it too. Oh, you guys don't read it in Greek? <laughs> I had to deal with some Hebrew last week, and I was like, why? Why is this so hard? I don't get it. My flesh does it too. I can look at all those fabulous degrees on the wall and cry about how much money they all cost. But I can look at those and really start to think, and I'm something. Oh, and the devil and the flesh, they love that. They love it when a human being starts to think of themselves as something. That's when the devil can really go to work. I dare say evil flesh is almost more destructive than a demon-possessed person in the New Testament. Remember the guy who was cutting himself on the rocks? He was out in the wilderness leaving everybody alone, doing his own thing. Our flesh will have us splitting churches in half. Our flesh is truly the enemy. And our flesh will lie, whisper little lies to us about unity. Your brother over there, he doesn't agree with you. Your, that sister over there, she slighted you 25 years ago, remember? You thought your chicken pot pie was the best, but her turkey pot pie won. Cindy Owens won the chili cook-off, but you know yours is better. And we'll, we, if we listen to that stuff, we'll start to go, that's right, it was better. I'm God's favorite child. <laughs> Unity. Unity of the faith and of, here's a qualifier for unity, I love it, the knowledge of the Son of God. So unity is not found in what I think, unity is found in what I learn and what I know and what I study about the Son of God. That's where unity comes from. Think about Jesus, John chapter 8. It's a text 
if you're scholarly, you kind of wrestle with because it's not in some of the oldest manuscripts. So like, is it scripture? Is it not? Uh, but either way, Jesus, he's drawn in the dirt. They've got the woman there and they're all picking up rocks to stone her and Jesus is doodling. And everybody wants to know what he's doodling. I think I do know you guys want to know what he was doodling. I was kidding. I have no idea. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say. <laughs> I do joke that he was reaching through the corridor of time and it was the disembodied hand on the wall of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon writing on the wall. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's book worthy right there. <laughs> That's big brain preacher stuff right there. No one knows. No one can say. He was just doing it. I honestly think he was literally just moving sand around, waiting for them humans to stop talking so he could say something divine. Because he looks up and he goes, well, yeah, if she's guilty, stone her. And if you're not guilty, you throw the first stone. Then he went back. And one by one, they all had to leave. Do you see how Jesus created unity there? He created a way for that woman to come back into the unity, back into the community. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, that's what I want. That's the judge I want to stand before. I want a judge that I'm going to stand before and say, I'm guilty. And him say, all right, well, let's do something about that. Go and sin no more. My unity is found in the knowledge, and that is why I mature to manhood. To the measure of the fullness of Christ. Christ is literally filling me up, my spirit being filled up by him so that I can pour out to others. Maturity creates unity, even to the point of disagreement. Because think about it. We've got this land that we've gotten cleared now in the back, right? And we all got some ideas about what we should do. And this is not a dictatorship. I'm not up here to decide, well, we're going to put in an amusement park. It's not up for just one person to decide. So as we have the discussions about what to do with all that land back there, and more importantly, how to get to it, amen, <laughs> we're going to have to have some unity. But if we have disagreements, then we're going to need some love because love covers the multitude of sins. You see what I'm getting at here? Because I may seriously think we need a full-on giant enclosed basketball court, multi-purpose building we could have all kinds of stuff in. But someone else may go, no, 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 we need a kickball field. Because we can do a lot of stuff with that. And that's, those are both great ideas. And love will get us to the right answer. Instead of saying, I don't like your idea. How about we start saying, I love your idea. Let's keep talking about it. Let's keep working it. Let's keep narrowing it down until we get to where God wants us to be. And God has a funny way of doing that thing because he'll start removing the money. He doesn't want you to spend it. <laughs> he'll start putting it in other places. Charles Spurgeon said this about unity. I love this. Satan hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which divides saints from one another is what he delights in. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. And that's what he promoted in the garden. Did God really say? Are you really connected to your creator? No, you're not, are you? Eat of the fruit 
and become like him. Satan creates distraction, confusion, and that breaks unity. Go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 11. While you're turning there, I have another kind of funny story. You want to know the times that I have had just the absolute, just worst time trying to get a group of Christians to be united on something? It's when I was a youth pastor, and on summer camp, we got to stop for lunch somewhere. And I've got 30 people all under the age of 16 going, no, I can't go there. <laughs> you know, one year we stopped at Walmart Supercenter and I went, go in there and buy whatever you want. <laughs> I do not care anymore. <laughs> it's Sunday, Chick-fil-A is not open, so go in there and get whatever you want. <laughs> Man, how fleshly we really are. Uh, Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. God is bringing many into this unity. He's bearing their sins so they can enter said unity. That's something to be excited about, something to be grateful for. Not scoffing because, oh, I can't believe... So-and-so comes to church now. Instead, be thankful that God let you come into his church. You know, we don't know what Paul's thorn was in his side. But Paul did persecute a lot of Christians. I'm sure at some point that was a thought for him. He says as much in his letters, I'm the least of the apostles. But Paul was brought into the unity. And then those men especially the first ones who had no reason to trust him, had every reason to flee from him, they brought him in because they saw by their knowledge of the Son of God the evidence of Christ in Paul. Look at verse 14 of Ephesians. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Yes, the world is being deceitful. Yes, they are lying. Yes, people can badly interpret God's word. But that doesn't mean we stay in that spiritual nursery I talked about last week. We're meant to come out. We're meant to be mature. We're meant to be adults. And because children get tossed to and fro by the waves spiritually. Freaked out at every little thing. So worried about some physical thing going wrong. Guys, it's, it's time for us to be mature in this way. When the storm comes, we don't run. When the storm winds blow, our house is built on rock, not sand. When evil comes, when Satan's army moves, when hellfire wants to consume those around us, we do not retreat. We do not cower. We do not fall back. We have a victorious Savior who has already conquered said evil. What do we have to fear? I say to you, fear your flesh, which would lie to you and keep you at home. 
with all the righteous reasons, self-righteous reasons, why you don't have to go out. Because the world is in a hurricane of doctrine. Every wind brings a new thought, a new heresy. It started immediately. The first battle the church fought in the first century was whether or not Jesus was Lord. They didn't start off about carpets. They didn't start off about buildings. They started up about the central thing of Christianity. Immediately, the enemy came to disrupt that unity. Paul is expressing an ultimate purpose here. Negatively, believers should not be like immature infants. Remember in, in his letters when Paul said, I had to cut the meat for you. And then some of you, I wanted you to be on meat, but you're still on milk. It's difficult to read scripture and go, oh, that's me. I'm the one still on milk. We don't like to think of ourselves that way. But sometimes it's true. False teachers come in, they cause this kind of confusion. And false uh, teaching comes into our minds now everywhere. We have the internet and phones beaming it right into our eyeballs. In contrast, Paul is stating positively that by speaking the truth in love, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Truth in love is this. You are, in fact, a wicked, evil, heinous sinner who deserves to burn in God's damnation. That's the truth. And then we add in love. But there is a Savior sent by God for such as you. Here's how you can repent and believe in Him. And not to avoid hell. Heaven is not just the, you know, hell insurance we want to have. To be reunited with your Creator and fulfill your created purpose of worship. We are called to grow out of these stages of Christianity where we're swayed by every doctrine that comes along. Human cunning will seek to pervert the gospel at every opportunity, and often does. Our young people are the most at risk for this simply because of their stage of life. They're learning new things every day at school. What's one more new thing? But that new thing could be an evil that destroys them. The truth in love shines through the darkness, and it reveals the message of Christ. Go to 1 Peter 122. There's a purification that has to go on that Peter talks about. I think is very important here. First Peter 1.22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That is a standard of unity. That's a standard of growth. I said what I said. I did what I did. I hoped what I hoped, and I prayed what I prayed, and I preached what I preached out of the purity of my heart for you. If you were offended, I'm sorry, but I did what I thought God wanted me to do. Versus the opposite, my heart was compromised with selfish, evil desires. And that's why I said what I said and did what I did. So if your heart is compromised, you must repent. But if your heart is pure, I said what I said to you, no matter how much it hurt you, I said what I said because I want God to save you. 
That's truth and love. That's a pure heart. But if our heart be compromised, if it's actually just pain making you say it, it's probably not God. Love one another earnestly, truly, with honesty from a pure heart. I want to have a pure heart. But I know the only way I can do it is having the one in me who purifies the heart. Having the Spirit of God in me who purifies the soul. Having the, the redemption that Christ bought and paid for me on the cross applied to my heart. That's the only way. Without Him, I don't have purity. I don't have a pure heart. I have a heart that thinks I'm awesome and everybody else is dumb. That's what my flesh thinks. And be honest, yours does too. But in Christ, I know I'm, I'm nothing. My Lord, my Savior, He, He is everything. Look at verse 16 of Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians. Verse 16. I love this. The whole body joined by every joint. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint from which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Working properly, I love that phrase. Because a body part working improperly is cancerous, it is dying, it is dead, needs to be removed, and God, as the vine dresser, is cutting those branches off of his vine. But when it's working properly, when we are in united in that message and that mission to make it about Christ, make it about Him and nothing else, then we are working properly. I mean, if you just imagine, everyone has a car, right? Truck, something? You drove here this morning? Did anybody ride a horse? Probably not. So you all drove something here. Imagine if every day you're trying to get to work, get to church, get to the supermarket, pick up the kids from school, drop them off at school, and the car keeps breaking down every day. We typically get rid of those vehicles when we have them. I think they're named after a certain citrusy fruit. Now imagine that that's God dealing with you. He has things he wants done, and yet you, his vessel, keeps breaking down. And not for extreme wear and tear over the mission, over the bumps of the road that he has put you on. No, it's because your parts are not working properly. You are not aligned. You are not set. I remember I, my dad gave me a truck when I was 18, and I loved that truck. had it for a long time. But one day, it just suddenly died. It was something terribly wrong with it. So we spent a lot of money, a lot of time. We even had it over at Wayne Bazaar's garage one day up on the thing. We, we changed everything in that truck, the fuel pumps, and it's all this stuff. And come to find out, finally, when I admitted defeat, I said, all right, let's take it to the mechanic. We took it to the mechanic, and the electronic brain of the truck had died. Now, the rest of the parts we changed, they probably needed changed anyway. But the brain had died. The thing telling the rest of the parts what to do had failed completely. I wonder how many are this way in the church. They've got all the outward parts all trying to make it happen, but yet the head, the leadership, the brain, the heart, the soul, the spirit 
is dead. See, I think that's the biggest problem. This is probably the most controversial, uh, um, honestly, the most uh, offensive thing I could say to all of you, or at least some of you. That the real issue is not what I said or did, or what you said or did. The real issue is that you are simply not a Christian. I have found that to be true in every group. That for whatever reason, you are simply not. And I encourage you because that is a fine place to be if you are honest. If you are honest, if you're being real with God, that is a fine place to be. Because from there, we can start to do real gospel work. From there, we can really go on to some real repentance and belief. But the one who shuts their ears, like the psalmist says, and will not hear the counsel is the one in danger. Because they go through their life and then they die, just assuming that my works have made me righteous in God's eyes. When I tell you that is not so, you must have Christ. Your works mean nothing. Nothing without him. Each part working properly. What is working properly? It's the Holy Spirit who's working it. That's when it's working properly. Now, it's also a balance. It's an easy thing as soon as an issue crops up to say, oh, I guess you're just not saved then. I'm not saying that. We all have our struggles, me more than anybody. But the truth is, if you're never working properly, you got to look at some point and ask why. Got to ask why. I love this about love. Hate tears down and destroys, but love rather builds up. We will not build the kingdom of God by hating others. You may say to me, God hates sin and I do too. And I say to you, good. But God went further than that. I'm telling you, it's not enough to say I hate sin. That's great. But God went further than that. I think if you say, I hate sin, then you should do what God did about sin when he declared that he hated it. He sent his son to be the gospel. I think if you hate sin, you should be preaching the gospel more than anybody. Too long, we Christians have only condemned without giving the, the condemned the other half. We'll say to the world, you're evil and wicked and sinful. Jesus did too. Called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. But yet, he went on. Remember the woman. He went on to say, go and sin no more. Peter denied him three times after he told him he was going to. But he goes on to say, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. If you say you hate sin because God hates sin, amen, then do what God does about sin. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who takes the sin away. And I've seen that really work, folks. I have seen that power really work. When we preach Christ, change happens. People are redeemed. People are saved. People are revealed. The, the ones socially and culturally in church who are kind of on the outer rim, but the truth is their heart is right with God. They get revealed. I love that story. I love that stuff. Go to 1 Thessalonians. I'm probably going to finish up here. It's afternoon. 
starting to get hungry. It's funny, I, I never really pay attention to sermon length because I can't. It messes me up to try to do that, you know? That's why I don't get upset if it's short. I don't get upset if it's long. But I think generally, I think there's a, you know, you've got to sort of keep an eye. I do that because I love you. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Verse 12, this is key. Look at this. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Look now, for one another and for all. That one another applies to your church family. And that for all applies to everyone else. Now don't misunderstand. I'm not saying you just got to love the evil sin that some people do. No. No, God hates sin and so do I. But if we really want to do something about that sin, we got to tell them about Jesus Christ. There's a misconception about Jesus. You'll often hear people say, Jesus, he was hanging out with the sinners. First of all, I dispute the phrase, Jesus was hanging out. I know the long-haired pictures make him look like a hippie, but I don't think he was hanging out. Zacchaeus, I come to dine at your house tonight. He wasn't just hanging out. He was bringing the truth of God. Jesus did spend time with sinners. You and I are right now. He did spend a lot of time in the company of sinners. But spent in the company of Jesus brought change because of his message. That's why evil company will corrupt your good habits, but good company. You know what's good company? The gospel. So it's a balance for the Christian. Because I've heard many a teenage girl or even young lady tell me, well, I just believe I can change him. No, you can't, sweetheart. Don't try. You can be his buddy, <laughs> and you can get saved, and then y'all can go on a date. <laughs> uh. Love for one another and for all, but this is the balance. There is nobody that we don't have to love. And I've heard some well-meaning Christians figure out certain groups they don't have to love. But this verse, I'm telling you, it teaches there's nobody on this planet you don't have to love. I love this quote from John Calvin. John Calvin, one of the most hard theologians there ever was. This guy had people killed, okay? I'm sorry, it's just historically fact, he did. He was a man, he's not perfect. But look what he says here. Whatever a person may be like, we must still love them because we love God. I love that quote. Now go back to Ephesians. We, read, we just read a man's opinion. Pretty good. But as I said at the beginning, not as good. Amen. Go back to, I'm sorry, did I say Ephesians? I meant Thessalonians. Go back to Thessalonians. Verse 12. Make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Church, I'm telling you, this is what I want. Not just for me, not just for my family, but for you. That we would abound in love for one another and for all. Now, sometimes it's going to be some tough love. 
Sometimes we're going to have to love somebody right on out the door, lest they stay here and perish under God's judgment. But we can still do it in love. God gives us a great example because it was love that he killed his son. And if he can do that, then we can do everything in love. It may sound tough. You may have people get upset at you. But if your heart is pure, God is pleased. Look at verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Blameless in holiness. I just spoke to a man who was just coming off a situation dealing with, with people. Maybe some of them probably aren't saved. It's hard to tell. The fruit's just it's not there. But he made this statement to me. He said, I'm blameless before God. My heart was pure. I did everything God wanted me to do. That's holiness. That's holiness, folks. Before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord. God directs us to love each other in the church and have love for all people. How do we love them, even the most wicked ones? Giving them the gospel that can change them. That's how we love. That's how God loved. This is true spiritual growth in Christ. Give the gospel of Jesus. That's how God loves the world. John 3.16. How did God love the world? For God so loved the world, he did what? Do you see the focus there? Do you see the, the emphasis? The emphasis is not that God loved the world, but he loved it so much he would send his only son. So love as God loves, no matter how wicked the person, no matter how evil, no matter how difficult it may be if the person is very close to you, spouse, child, whatever. Love like God loved. Give them Jesus. That's enough for me. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you now that you would be the focus. Lord, that your heart for sinners, Lord, to go and sin no more, Lord, we carry that message. So Lord, let us carry it truthfully. Let us not compromise that message when the world says, oh, come on, just, just let us do this thing or be this way. Can't we all get along? That is not love to compromise the truth. So, Lord, help us to be strong. Help us to have courage, but also peace. For while there's no one, Lord, that I can't love, that I can say, oh, I don't have to love them, the way that I love, I must keep consistent. I must bring them the gospel of the Savior who can change them. And in doing so, Lord, I will have loved them the most that I can by sharing with them the Savior who loved me. I thank you, Lord, and I ask this in your name. Amen.